Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now as you prepare your heart to receive God's Word, we pray that His Spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. All right, well listen, when St. Augustine was asked to list the central principles of the Christian life, he was asked to list the central principles of the Christian life. And he replied with this. I quote, he said, first, humility. Second, humility. Third, humility. And it shouldn't surprise us that that would be his answer. And it shouldn't surprise us that the foundational virtue of the Christian life is, in fact, humility. I, I want you just to consider for a moment some of the most radical words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. On the screen for you, in Matthew 20, 26 to 28, Jesus said, But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or consider what he said in Matthew 5, 3 on the screen, as he opened up the Beatitudes in the great sermon on the mount, Jesus said, blessed are who? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For there's is the kingdom of heaven. Or what about the unbelievable scene of John 13, verses 14 and 15 on the screen as Jesus kneels down to wash the feet of his disciples when he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example and you also should do just as I have done to you. You need to work very hard to avoid the central virtue of humility all throughout the Bible and in the teachings and in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it would be near impossible as we take a good look at the doctrine of the Incarnation in this series we're in, it would be near impossible for us to look at the doctrine of the Incarnation and not see a demonstration of this, a clear example of this, a clear call to this. Humility. I want you to know today, love hunts, that our message today can really transform your life. I don't know what you came expecting today, but I want to encourage you with this truth that I believe so much that the truth of God's Word can really transform your heart today. Whether you are a seasoned believer or a new believer, or especially if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, 
Every single one of us, to varying degrees, battles with the incessant pride that creeps up on us and stands closely behind us and waits in anticipation in front of us and lies hidden beneath us to overtake us overwhelmingly with the often undetected thoughts. I am the most important person. I know. Maybe you don't think that way in such clear terms, but that's often the thought that undergirds a lot of our behavior. That's often the heart posture that undergirds a lot of our behavior. This is the opposite of humility. And it's the antithetical thought process to all that is modeled for us in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we continue in our series, Incarnation, what Christmas means for me. And today we have in front of us another clear and important text concerning the truth of the incarnation and what it means for you and what it means for me. I want you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to put up your hand, and one of the ushers would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible will be our gift to you today. We would love you to take it home and read it and have your life changed by the Word of God. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read just verses 5 to 7. While you're turning to Philippians chapter 2, let's get a definition of incarnation up on the screen so that we're all aware, again, of what we're talking about. We put this on the screen last week. Incarnation, here's a definition. Incarnation is the word used to explain how the second member of the Trinity entered into human history in flesh as the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. In other words, Incarnation is the word used to describe how God came to be with us by becoming like us without ever ceasing to be God. This is what our text of Scripture is about today. Look at it. Philippians chapter 2, starting from verse 5. This is what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Philippi. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I'll read verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have here the words of the Apostle Paul very intentionally to the church at Philippi, and I believe uh, for our church today, highlighting incarnation humility. If you're taking notes, I want to start with this point. Uh, Incarnation humility. Point number one for today is this. uh, Emulating, not ignoring uh, Christ's example. Incarnation humility. This is the call for our lives today. 
emulating, not ignoring Christ's example. Look at verse five again. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now here's the idea. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi wants the church to understand the mind of Jesus Christ and the ways of Jesus Christ and the priorities of Jesus Christ so that this church can be like Jesus Christ. And this has very practical implications and very practical application for the church, not only the church at Philippi, but for our church. But in that context, apparently, they weren't being like Christ to each other. They had some conflicts among them that the letter specifically addresses as you go on to read the book of Philippians. They had some challenges that were tearing them apart and dividing them. And yet again, loved ones, we see just how important the unity of the church is to God. And all throughout the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is this addressing of the unity of the church. And we need this message. Not only in our church, let me tell you how much we need it in our church, but churches everywhere need it. This is the context. This church needs humility. Now, we need to understand that verse 5 is a transition verse here in Philippians chapter 2. So I want you to look at verses 3 to 4. In fact, I have it on the screen for you. In verses 3 to 4, Paul gives the exhortation, what he wants the church to do. And then in verses 5 to 8, he illustrates the supreme example to follow. That's what we're going to unpack. But notice verses 3 to 4, Paul says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. I want you to think about your life and think about your relationships and think about how you get along in this church. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but, notice it, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the exhortation. That's what he wants them to do. And then he gives the example that's going to enable them to be able to live this out. Now, we need to know, and it doesn't take us very long to realize this, that for human beings, uh, we don't do this very well. Our natural inclination in the flesh is to think about ourselves first, to have some kind of ambition about ourselves first and not about others. And guess what? We as Christians... Saved by God's grace, given the gift of the Holy Spirit, instructed by the Word of God. Very often, surprisingly and shockingly sometimes, we are no better than the world in this regard. We don't do this very well, to think of others as better than ourselves. In fact, I've often quoted these terrible and indicting words from Gandhi when Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It's a hard word. And they weren't being like Christ at the church in Philippi. And all over the world, today, 
under the conditions we've been living in, especially over the past two years, and the polarizing opinions and the controversies and the misunderstandings and the miscommunications and the assumptions. We haven't been doing this very well. And Paul says to this church, you need to do better. And the way you're going to do better, the way you're going to be better is not by trying harder in your own strength to do better, to be better. It's simply by adjusting your gaze. That's how you're going to do better. That's how you're going to be better. That's how you're going to be like Christ to each other. Not by trying harder to be a better Christian, but simply adjusting your gaze. You're looking in the wrong direction. That's why he begins to paint the picture of the beautiful example of the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ in the incarnation. Because Paul knows that the unity of the church depends greatly on the humility of the church and the humility of the church depends solely on the work and the example of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Stop ignoring the powerful example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at him. Look at his example. Look at the incarnation. See what he's doing. See how he lives. See how the word became flesh to dwell among us. See him there. See the Jesus of the Bible. And when you get a glimpse of the Jesus of the Bible, and you get a glimpse of the humility of the Jesus of the Bible, you're changed. You can't be proud when you consider what the God of the universe did for you. You can't continue exalting yourself when you consider how the God of the universe worthy of all exaltation from eternity past condescended to you. And when we look at Jesus and we begin to emulate Jesus, the humility of Jesus changes us and begins to move out from our hearts to each other. And all of a sudden, this thing called unity that seems so hard to come by sometimes. You just look around evangelicalism these days and you think, is this even possible? Is the prayer Jesus prayed that we would all be one as he and the Father are one, is this even possible? All of a sudden, when you see humility flourish in the hearts of the people of God, you see, oh, how possible this is. It's God's will. It's God's purpose. I'm telling you, loved ones, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how theologically astute you are, how successful in your business you are, how long you've been in the faith, or how many groups you've led, or how many missions trips you've been on. Satan has one effective strategy to destroy the church one way or another. If he can get us all to be thinking supremely about ourselves, he can drive a destructive wedge, and before you know it, we've lost the heart and priorities and mind of God, and it happens so fast fast.
So you can be really theologically sound, but not really if you're proud. You can have all your doctrinal I's dotted and T's crossed, but if you're not humble, it's not good theology. It's not producing what's intended to be produced. And let me just ask you the question. You know, 1 Peter 5 says that Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Has he been prowling around your life? Deceiving you? Tricking you into thinking, I deserve, I deserve better, I deserve. Me. I need, I need. Why can't they see me? Why can't she see me? Why can't he see me? Me, 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 me. You know what that is? Very often Satan prowling around like a roaring lion, deceiving. And all of a sudden the flesh rises up. And all of a sudden we're walking around and we don't even realize. Filled with pride. Ignoring the example of Jesus which produces humility in us. rather than emulating the example of Jesus in order to grow in that humility that we so need. Quick heart check. If you're sitting here right now, you're thinking, man, this is a message for someone else. That's proof that it's a message for you. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, Jason's always talking about humility all the time. I don't need this. Proof you need it. You're sitting here thinking, I, I got this. I'm pretty humble. Uh, A dear friend of mine always likes to say, I'm not humble, but I really, really want to be. And I'm pursuing it. Emulating the example of Jesus is what Paul is going to lead us to now. Not ignoring it. Incarnation, humility, emulating, not ignoring Christ's example. Secondly, this, a yielding, not grasping for position. Yielding, not grasping for position. Notice now the beginning of verse 6, starting from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here it is now. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, Paul begins to illustrate the humility that he's calling for in the church by shocking the church with the extent of the humility of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. He's about to talk about Christmas now. He's about to make sure that those of us that are going to gather in a few days from now and be all consumed with opening presents and going to parties and family gatherings and forget about Jesus Christ and say, no, 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 I'm going to make sure you understand what this thing is all about and that you grow in humility. He's beginning now to illustrate the humility of the incarnation, namely that prior to the incarnation, 
what makes the incarnation, the, the infleshing of God so unbelievable is the humility required by Jesus to leave pre-incarnate glory, to leave limitless perfection, to leave the eternal worship of heaven, to add to his divine nature the humiliation and the limitations of a human nature. It's phenomenal who though he was in the form of God, he was God, he is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why is Paul laying down this as an example for the church to follow? Well, the answer is because at the center of all of their conflicts in Philippi, at the center of all of our conflicts here in Hope Church is this insatiable need for position and recognition and affirmation and validation. I want you to think about this because we all know the frustration that builds in us or the tension that tightens in us when two conflicting people are grasping for the higher position, whether it is rightfully theirs or not. Do you know what that feels like? We're very often blind to these things, but I just want you to think about how this plays out in your life. When you're at odds with someone else, a friend or a spouse or an in-law or a parent, when you just can't seem to get it together, when you just can't seem to find the right way to come together, it's because each of us is grasping for some position. I need to make my stand known. I'm not moving. You have to move. Oh, no, no. I'm not moving. I'm staying right. I have this rightful position. I'm not going in. You have to move. You see how it works in our lives? And Paul says, you who are at odds, you who are fighting, you who are conflicted, consider now Jesus Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When he was tired, when he was hungry, when he was tempted, when he was mistreated, he yielded to his Father's will rather than grasp for his rightful position. Make no mistake about it, Jesus never lost his rightful position. He never lost his deity. He remained in his rightful position as God. And although his position as God was rightfully his, he yielded. He did not grasp for it. He humbled himself. Can you comprehend such humility? If you're a boss at work and your subordinate defies you, not saying there's not a process to follow. I'm just saying consider how you feel in your heart when that happens. You feel, I'm the boss. You can't do that to me. Trying to give you an image. I'm trying to help you understand Jesus is God. That's his position. What? He was subjected to, in his earthly life, 
He should never have been subjected to that, and he didn't have to be subjected to that, but he yielded in humility for a greater purpose. An amazing purpose. You know, how many times in our lives are we found grasping, reaching for a position? Are you doing that today? Grasping for position. Is there a situation in your life that could be resolved in a moment if you would just humble yourself and stop grasping for position, even if the position is rightfully yours? Incarnation, humility. Emulating, not ignoring Christ's example. Yielding, not grasping for position. Thirdly, Incarnation, humility, a serving, not insisting on prominence. Don't you notice verse 7, but we'll start reading from verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice verse 7. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Amazing. This verse has been the subject of much debate historically. Some have tried to use this verse to teach that the incarnation meant Jesus losing or diminishing his deity, but that's not true. The key to understanding this verse is asking the question of what exactly did Jesus empty himself? What exactly did Jesus empty himself of? I want you to listen to what J.I. Packer wrote on the screen. J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor meant laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involved such agony, spiritual, even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely men. I want you to notice the text again in verse 7. He emptied himself. Notice, by taking the form of a servant. The word servant is better translated slave or bond slave. So understand this. The creator of the universe became a slave to his own creation. The most prominent one became least of all. The preeminent one became the lowliest of all. Just try to wrap your mind around such humility. And now allow the humility of Jesus Christ in the incarnation to stare you in the eye. The most prominent one, the preeminent one, became a slave. Let that humility stare you in the eye. J.R. Packer goes on to boldly say this on the screen. He says, It is our shame 
and disgrace today that so many Christians, I will be more specific, so many of the soundest and most orthodox Christians go through this world in the spirit of the priest and the Levite in our Lord's parable. He's talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Seeing human needs all around them, but averting their eyes and passing by on the other side. It is not the Christmas spirit, Packer says. But it is the spirit of some Christians. Alas, they are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building a nice middle-class Christian home and making nice middle-class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle-class Christian ways and who leave the marginalized of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on as best they can. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. I hope that convicts you in the best way possible because that convicts me. Again, I love what Packer said, the soundest and most orthodox people. You know one of the dangers of a church that says we want to be about the word of God and sound doctrine and good theology? You know one of the dangers that can creep into a church like that? And that's the kind of church we want to be? But one of the dangers that can creep in if we're not careful is this, we lose the heart of theology. We lose the heart of what it means to be sound. And we become Christian snobs, as Packer illustrates. You don't see it like I see it. I'm right, you're wrong. Our church is right, your church is wrong. Don't get me wrong. There's right and there's wrong, absolutely. But I'm talking about the spirit. I'm talking about the heart. If there's no humility in our church, we are a bunch of losers theologically. We lose. But good theology always produces true humility. You have to be careful that what you're learning and how you're growing doesn't puff you up, but it humbles you. That's what the incarnation does. Loved ones, we better watch out. Lest we, in all our doctrinal soundness and all our theological clarity and in all our certainty and decisiveness in the face of a declining culture, lest we look in the mirror only to find one big Christian snob. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us never to be a church of snobs. Allow me to be more direct. Who are we serving? Jesus became a servant, the text tells us. Who are we serving? How and who are we serving with the money that God has entrusted to each of us? Now, this is a direct question for each of us to answer, and collectively as a church. Who are we serving? Who and how are we serving 
with the gifts that God has entrusted to us. Who and how are we serving this Christmas season and beyond into the new year, into the cold and lonely months of January and February? It's nice to do an outreach and to show up at Christmas time and Christmas passes, and then what? Our last two outreach opportunities were full, packed, no more room. Praise the Lord. But where will you be in January? Where will we be in February? It's good to visit the family that's lost a loved one. But where will we be a few months from then? Who and how are we serving? Emulating the incarnation, emulating what Jesus did for us. He served. He became a servant. That's the power of the incarnation. And it compels me to consider my own life. And it compels me as a pastor in this church to challenge each of you. How and who are we serving? Jesus took on the form of a servant for us. This is the humility of the incarnation. And I pray it must compel lives of radical service here and beyond. Incarnation humility. Emulating, not ignoring Christ's example. Yielding, not grasping for position. Serving, not insisting on prominence. Finally this. Decreasing, not increasing in self-promotion. Decreasing not increasing in self-promotion. Notice verse 7, but we're going to start again reading from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Here it is, being born in the likeness of men. God the second member of the Trinity, born in the likeness of men. On the screen, listen to what C.S. Lewis said. He said in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature He has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly strains his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. In this descent, and reascent. Everyone will recognize a familiar pattern, a thing written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard, small, and death-like. It must fall into the ground. Thence the new life reascends. The doctrine of the incarnation, if accepted, puts this principle even more emphatically at the center. The pattern is there in nature because it was first there in God. 
to be born in the likeness of man was the greatest condescension, the greatest decrease, the descending, the decreasing of God, the second member of the Trinity, to humble himself in the most radical way. He decreases. He does not insist on promoting himself. And don't miss the reality. When he's knelt down washing the disciples' feet, there's no mistake in that room who the leader is. There's no mistaking in that moment who the master is. They know who the leader is. They know who the master is. It's Jesus Christ. And in his declining, in his decreasing, his meekness is put on display. His glory is put on display. And those of you that are afraid to decrease because you feel like it'll be seen as weakness, that's not humility. Those of you who are leaders in the room, let me talk to a few leaders right now. You're a leader in the room. And you're, you're worried about humbling yourself because maybe the people that you lead will take advantage of you. They'll take advantage of your leadership. That's the wrong way to think. Strong leaders kneel to wash feet. Strong leaders decrease. I pray that the leaders in our church, pray that I would decrease following the example, emulating the example of Jesus Christ who took on the form of humankind. Are you struggling to humble yourself? Are you in a fight with somebody? You have a conflict in your life that's not going away. You have someone you haven't talked to in over a year or two years or 10 years or 30 years. Listen, I understand sometimes conflicts can be complicated. But have you done all that you can do to decrease, to humble yourself, to follow the example of Jesus? After all, it was F.B. Meyer who said so well, the only hope for a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. You're sitting here right now and maybe there's just even one or two or ten in this room and you feel like there is a relationship that's not intact and I can't bring myself to humble myself. Well, take these words of counsel from F.B. Meyer. The only hope for a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. You need to lift your eyes. Got to take your eyes up. You got to elevate your eyes to see Jesus. You have to see the incarnation. This Christmas, maybe some of you are dreading that family gathering because of some conflict between you and another family member. Today, if you see an increasing Christ, this season with an increasing Christ could be the season, could be the year, it could be 2022 where that relationship is made right. It could be. 
And I pray it would be. But the only hope is an increase in Christ. That's why Paul sees the disunity in the church and the conflict taking place amongst the, the church at Philippi. And his remedy is not try harder to better. His remedy is you need to humble yourself, but this is how you're going to do it. Look at Jesus Christ in the incarnation. That's what he just laid out for us. So lift your eyes. Lift your eyes. I'm going to read verse 8 now. And then I'm going to lead us to a time of self-examination and reflection as we prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want you to bow your head with me right now. The worship team will come. And I want you to consider Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus. The only hope for a decreasing self is an increasing Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was born on Christmas, but he was born to die. most humiliating death, most excruciating death, to bear the filth and the weight and the burden of your sin and mine so that we could have life, so that we can come to God, so that we can have the gift of the Holy Spirit, so that we can stop ignoring his example and start living in the power of his example. So if you don't have the elements in your hand and you want some, you're, you're a follower of Christ and you're, you want to participate in the Lord's Supper today, but you didn't get one, you can put up your hand right now. One of the ushers will put the elements in your hand if you didn't get them. Again, this is for followers of Jesus Christ take these moments very seriously. We're not to participate in this casually or carelessly. I encourage you to lift your eyes to him. See his humility so that we can rightly see all of our pride, how we've elevated ourselves, how we've promoted ourselves, how we've been grasping for position. See him there on the cross, bearing the weight and burden of our sin. Perhaps this is a moment for you to confess your sin to God. Maybe for you, it's very obvious. You say, Lord, I've been so proud. 
with your eyes on Jesus and he's doing this work in your heart, you say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Maybe what's happening to you right now is what happens to me so often. Just in a moment, God shows me how filled with pride I am. How much I am just considering me. Just me. Thinking about anybody else. Just thinking about me. My marriage with my children. My ministry responsibilities. How many days... Jason, just thinking about Jason. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us. We see you, Lord, in the incarnation. We see you, the King of heaven, with all your eternality. You are immutable. You are transcendent. You are holy. You are sovereign. You who sustains the universe by the word of your power. This is the one who was confined to the body of a baby in a womb. Such humility. How unwilling I am, Lord, to be inconvenienced in the simplest things. Don't let this moment pass by you before you say, Lord, forgive me. I hold these elements in my hand and I remember your body and your blood. Forgive me, Lord. Certainly, if you are at odds with someone in this church, maybe you need to pass on the elements right now until you go and make things right. This is serious. God cares about unity. Paul says, I received from you, from the Lord, what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand to your feet right now? Just before we sing, we're going to sing in a moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for your body and your blood. Thank you for the Spirit of God living in me. Thank you for the Word of God convicting me today. With my eyes on you, I will do what you want me to do. In Jesus' name we pray. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.